we, the people on this island, are not important. The island and the nutrients it provides exist in their most perfect state without us gathering them or manipulating them or digesting them. What happens inside this room is meaningless compared to what happens outside, in nature, in the soil and the water and the air. We are but a frightened nanosecond. Nature is timeless. So myths are stories of, of the search by men and women through the ages for meaning, for significance, to make life signify, to touch the eternal, to understand the mysterious, to find out who we are. People say that what we're all seeking is a meaning for life. I don't think that's what we're really seeking. I think what we're seeking is an experience of being alive so that uh, the life experiences that we have on the purely uh, physical plane will have resonances within that are those of our own innermost being and reality. And uh, so that we actually feel the rapture of being alive. Uh, that's what it's all finally about. And that's what these uh, clues help us to find within ourselves. A double intro clip. One from the film The Menu, and the other from Papa Joe Campbell. All relevant to the show's topic on the Divine Feminine. The female essence is our connection to nature. Orthodoxy has known this for millennia, doing a banger job of suppressing women, even today, and thus cutting us off from the necessary gifts and curses of nature needed for our wholeness. The Divine Feminine myth is also essential for the archetypal energies above. The transcendent union of the cosmic anima and animus that also brings wholeness. That's what Aeon Bite has always fought for. It's not so much about today's divide and conquer concept of patriarchy or feminism or whatever but about uniting ethereal forces within us to bring about awakening, balance, and compassion to all life forms on Earth. The quest is to be liberated from the negative, which is really our own will to nothingness. And once having said yes to the instant, the affirmation is contagious. It bursts into a chain of affirmations that knows no limit to say yes to one instant is to say yes to all of existence. Myths are important, and our full integration with the world is important. As Jungian June Singer wrote in A Gnostic Book of Hours, as long as we see ourselves as frail creatures confronted by a hostile world, or as losing our balance in the face of superior forces, we are in fact surrendering our natural power. We are alienated from our source of support, and we do not even know that such a source exists. Nevertheless, there is bound to be a messenger. Sometimes the messenger appears as a teacher coming from afar to bring the requisite knowledge and sometimes as a voice speaking from within. 
The messenger prepares the way for the soul's liberation from the bondage of ignorance and its ascent to knowledge of the divine, which is within us and yet beyond us. Myths are true expressions of our inner selves, revealed cryptically in image, symbol, and metaphor. They are something like dreams. Rationally, they may not ring true, but in a psychological sense, they express people's inner processes through the use of ingenious devices that conceal what must be concealed and reveal what must be revealed. Myths are clues. Myths are clues to the spiritual potentialities of the human life. What we're capable of knowing within. Yes. And experiencing within. Yes. I, I liked your definition. You changed the definition of a myth from the search for meaning to the experience of, the experience, of meaning. The experience. Experience of life. The experience of life. Great gnosis, June. Not easy, mind you. The Archons are powerful, and so are their Karens and Katamites in the establishment. As anarchist exemplar Emma Goldman wrote, While society forgives the criminal, it never forgives the dreamer. Whoa. But they are losing because they are artificial and without imagination. They are shadow and smoke in the desert of the real. We are the veterans of a thousand psychic wars who have set the controls to the heart of the sun. Modern day Tom Sawyers are mine not for rent to any god or government. To quote the great Joseph Campbell, he said, it is by going down into the abyss where we recover the treasures of life. Where you stumble, there lies your treasure. To the ironic twist of the unknown, so welcome to the virtual Alexandria. We're running with those searching for the truth and avoiding those who have found it. We're writing our own gospel and living our own myth. I am Miguel Connor, your pompadus of Gnosis. Honored and blessed to have your company. Mr. Wolf, there are two turns of phrase a Klingon never admits to knowing. Defeat. And farewell. We will go deep into the womb of the Divine Feminine Principle. We are honored to chat with Joe Graham to discuss her excellent new book, Seven Goddesses of the Hellenistic World, Ancient Worship for Modern Times. Get ready for penetrating but useful information on the Divine Feminine Principle. Some for goddesses you probably haven't heard from. It is indeed raining Gnosis. Hallelujah. Our Father, which art in heaven, stay there. And we shall stay on earth, which is sometimes so pretty. We could only do a bit over an hour. Beyond scheduling Archons, Joe was on the tail end of the Rona, and I had some cold where I could barely breathe. Still a full interview in terms of awesomeness. But as a bonus for all subs, I'll include a past interview with Kelly Hunter, author of Living Lilith, Four Dimensions of the Cosmic Feminine. A whole lot of Lilith and other spicy goddesses. Don't miss it. God bless those pagans. 
Of course, at AM Bite, Sophia is the godly chick we circle our wagons around. From a Lashian or Valentinian perspective, we can view Sophia's Gaia in all her sacred and profane aspects. In some Gnostic stories, she is Earth itself, lost in a lonely corner of the galaxy, her tears creating the oceans and rivers. From a mythological perspective, Sophia is fascinating because of the multiplicity of meanings that, as Papa Joe said, allow an experience of life, that ecstasy over entertainment. Here are some meanings to the fall and rise of Sophia. I, that have been sent from the power, and I have come to those who think about me, and I have been found in those who search for me, accept me by your side. I am the first and the last, the honorable and the despicable, the prostitute and the respectable, the wife and the virgin, the mother and the daughter. Sophia's myth represents the fall of Ashira and other ancient deities, two patriarchal cults, the erasure of a Hebrew animistic, holistic, and shamanistic time when, yes, we humans were more whole and connected to nature. Sophia represents the soul's high adventure across the spheres of reality. She is like other fallen goddesses, including Inanna, Kaibel, Ishtar, Isis, and Anath, representing the female depicted soul. This trope extends to Helen of Troy in the Homeric accounts, Alice in Wonderland, Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, and your average scream queen. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. The great Oz has spoken. Who are you? Oh, I, I, I am the great and powerful Wizard of Oz. Sophia represents the high cost of wisdom, from a rebellion to the birth of Yaldibaldi to a restoration of the universe. Humans throughout history have sought the gifts of wisdom, yet the reality is that wisdom takes a heavy toll on existence. Like Rudolf Steiner, Steiner, Steiner said, Wisdom is crystallized pain. The world breaks everyone, and afterward, some are strong at the broken places. Sophia is that dangerous nexus between the spiritual and the material. In Gnostic accounts, Sophia is often depicted as hysterical, neurotic, and even schizophrenic. Yet at the same time, the mediator between heaven and earth. This means that when mortals contact higher planes of reality, the mind will bend and even break. To be wise is to be sane, but also to never forget those epochs of insanity that, paradoxically, paved the way. But I don't want to go among mad people. Sophia is a sort of Hellenistic koan. The saga of Sophia offers this by asking these sound of one hand clapping questions. How could the wisdom of God fail? Is wisdom without experience wisdom at all? Can perfection fail? Or is failing just part of perfection? It's been a brilliant journey of self-awakening. Now you've simply got to ask yourself this. What is happiness to you? Sophia represents the disastrous state of knowledge without wisdom. 
In Gnostic cosmology, once the divine realm loses wisdom, things go south quickly. Wisdom may not be perfect in her attempt to teach us that there is no perfection, but casting her aside usually leads to the grimmer aspects of human history. Logos must have wisdom. Zeus was never the same after Athena sprouted from his head. As the Book of Enoch states, men rejected wisdom and now she waits in the clouds. Or as the Pistis Sophia declares, rebuffing wisdom has turned her into a demon. I suffered. That's what an angel is. Dust pressed into a diamond by the weight of this world. You crushed me. Sophia represents the essence of comfort. Despite her mistakes and ambitions, Sophia finds a way to instill serenity within herself and her children, us. She is a literary illustration teaching that peace is attainable through the hardest of times. Her characteristics of complex femininity, curiosity, and the ultimate ability to be humble enough to ask for help makes her the great companion on any dark night of the soul. Supreme being, me protect you. What do you think? I'm sure you have your own takes. Regardless, we must restore Sophia along with the other goddesses. As the Book of Sirach says, the first human being never finished comprehending wisdom, nor will the last succeed in fathoming her. For deeper than the sea are her thoughts, and her counsels than the great abyss. And the roadmap to which the goddess stories are, are pointing is the map of, of elevating the spiritual to an equality with the physical so that you live in union with those two. Yes, there you, you come to the real sanctity of the earth itself because that is the body of the goddess. When Yahweh creates, he creates of the earth and breathes his life into it. He's not there. She's there. Your body is her body. And there's that kind of identity. Well, that's why I'm not so sure that the future of the race and the salvation of the journey is in space. I think it is well right here on Earth, in the body, in the womb of all of our being. Well, it certainly is. I mean, when you go out into space, what you're carrying is your body. And if that hasn't been transformed, space won't transform it for you. But thinking about space may help you to realize something. Because when it's over, I'm done. Like hot dogs on a grill. I'm quitting acting. So you can call the trades and... Tell them I said it was a tremendous honor to be a small part of one of the oldest of human traditions. Storytelling and myth-making.
This is the AM Byte interview. And with us, we have the pleasure of being joined by Joe Graham to discuss her book, Seven Goddesses of the Hellenistic World, Ancient Worship for Modern Times. Joe, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Excited too. We love to talk about the goddess here at Aeon Bite. We've done so many shows on, well, focusing on the Gnostic goddesses like uh, Sophia, Barbalo, and so forth. So it's always exciting, and I, I enjoyed your book a lot. And uh, it's not your typical just cataloging these uh, these ancient deities, but there's so much more, and we definitely want to unpack it. But with us, too, we've got the Moondog Vance as well. Vance, how are you doing? Just fine. And definitely uh, Hellenistic goddesses are one of my favorite things. Love the Greek gods and goddesses. Great stories. Indeed, and we'll get much more. So before we get started on the book, Joe, let's talk about you. How did you uh, come into these, as we say, heretical topics or life? Or how did you become a superhero sometimes, as we like to say? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I have always been interested in the goddesses and in the ancient world. Um, I was very into mythology as a young child. But even before that, um, my father told a story that when I was about four years old, I was somebody gave me a toy duck and I named this toy duck Ptolemy. And my father said, (laughs) why in the world have you named a toy duck Ptolemy? And I turned the duck in profile so its beak was sticking out. And I said, well, he looks just like him, don't you think? (laughs) And he really, you know, does resemble dear old Ptolemy Soder on right. points. Oh, yeah. But, um, you know, why a four-year-old would come up with that as a joke. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. So uh, it's always been there. Awesome. So what, if somebody said, what do you consider yourself? Uh, do you have a label or uh, are, you just, are you a practitioner, a, a researcher? Um, I am a practitioner. I have done a lot of different things. I worked with an eclectic hermetic circle for 10 years. Um, More recently, I focused a lot on Isis, um, but also some of the other goddesses of the Hellenistic world. I'm eclectic, um, I suppose, like a lot of people. And I don't close the door to anything. I do believe that there is a golden thread of truth that runs through many, many, many different traditions and religions and that uh, no one has a monopoly on wisdom. Exactly. Yeah. We're just chasing images and symbols to get to the, the, the unexplained truth, the sublime truth behind it. So, yes, and exactly. uh, yeah, so much richness when you get into a lot of these ancient figures. God, I love the cover of your book, especially the top with the yank and the owl and everything. Yeah, Very, I, I, love I love the it. symbolism. The artist did a wonderful job. And one of the reasons I wanted to write this book was to talk about that there, there are different paths to the goddess to truth to divine wisdom and that 
it's okay if your path is not identical to someone else's. And in the ancient world, these paths coexisted. No one would have said in, you know, 100 BCE, oh, you worship Isis? Well, you can't worship <laughs> Athena then. Yeah. You know, these things were all part of a rich picture of society and worked together. And, you know, if someone is more drawn to one thing than another, that's okay. It doesn't have to be, um, it doesn't have to be enclaves. It doesn't have to be cut apart. Yeah, well said. The uh, Greco-Roman world was very religiously and culturally inclusive, much more than us. The problem came to real estate. That's when the war started. (laughs) I want your land. Give me your land. But with the gods, everybody was pretty cool with each other. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, here's a question I had for you, too, because and this is a question I, I ended up uh, doing all these. Uh, I nodded myself and my thoughts. I was even up. But I was thinking, OK, I know today is a much more complex time. But in ancient times, it must have been simple to understand the difference between a goddess and a god. And then I said, wait a second. Yeah, of course. You know, a, a male a god is sort of warlike and strong. And then I'm like, oh, no, no, that's not true. You got athena and ishtar and uh segment mm-hmm. and all those oh okay well at least we can say a god is nurturing and soft i said oh no we got mm-hmm. hermes and adonis okay okay well i can say a god is solar oh no asian gods have a lot of solar sun goddesses oh wait moon yeah thought there's a lot of moon male gods and i keep going myself in circles joe so uh yeah. and i said well i just i'm just gonna ask joe and throw it on her lap what was the difference with the ancients between a goddess and a god? Even giving birth, Zeus. Zeus <laughs> gave birth to Dionysus from his side. You know, even that one doesn't work. <laughs> um, I would say what genitals they have in portrayals is usually the only way, you know, you can tell because obviously male gods like Zeus give birth, uh, gave birth to Diana to Athena, for example, from his head. Right. Um, yeah. and there are uh female goddesses who are warriors, there are male gods who are nurturing. You know, what wh- how do we visualize them? <laughs> what what body do we and I think body is the word that we're looking for is embodiment. All of these um all of these entities are talking about taking a concept, an idea, a spirit, a incorporeal thought and embodying it in some sort of thing that we can visualize because people are very bad at identifying with pure spirit or identifying with an idea we 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 try to anthropomorphize things we want to visualize we want to make art that uh inspires us and so we embody these entities into pictures that make it easier for us to understand them that's really well said and i would agree i mean yeah in ancient times uh you might be a woman and you're attracted to Athena, so you're going to go to the temple and sacrifice, or you're male, you're going to go to Poseidon and something like But then as, as you get to know the god and as maybe you start going into the mysteries, suddenly the gender starts falling down and 
the sex starts falling down and you start getting into the energies and of course once you really connect with any deity you go beyond everything and that being is uh uh androgynous it's beyond features it's just an experience right so you're right it's the image is a just a place to start it, it is it's a place to start and it helps us to begin our journey right. in the same way that many of the stories are intended to be beginning stories these are the stories that if you grew up in the hellenistic world you would have heard as a small child these would be you know stories that you know as intimately as you know kids today know you know marvel movies um these are the the stories that would be part of your uh cultural landscape i suppose is the best way to put that exactly an evolution is always in you talk about in your book about syncretism and my question and of course is also maybe a little bit of a hot uh a hot topic today but what would be the difference between syncretism and cultural appropriation well i think the difference is consent let's say that you marry a woman who has a different cultural background from you Mm -hmm. And her family makes certain foods at certain holidays. Her family has certain traditions. Maybe everybody gets together on Christmas Eve and they eat a certain kind of cake. And that's not a tradition in your family. But you get invited to your wife's celebration. Do you go? <laughs> you better. <laughs> you better. But let's say that your family really loves Fourth of July weekend. And every year there's a big cookout and there's ribs on the grill and you know if you miss this thing you might as well be flushing your mother's head in the toilet you cannot <laughs> miss this and your wife comes because of course she comes right right so your customs become syncretic and your kids grow up with okay so what we do for christmas is we go to the grandparents house and we eat almond cake and what we do for fourth of july is we barbecue ribs and we have a big cookout at a lake and that's their culture then that's what they grow up with is this syncretic putting together of your culture and your wife's culture no one is making someone do it and no one is stealing something from someone else this is consensual this is consensual blending that makes sense Ben. what i always tell people joe is i always tell them if your soul is calling you to something and by soul you can switch it with god damon whatever you want to call it that pull mm -hmm. you need to go to it if you feel a pull towards uh, voodoo or african uh african animism or if you're black and you feel a pull towards uh japanese shintoism you go for it because if you don't the pain of not listening to the gods is going to be worse than anything and uh, and i tell them if look if if in a, if in a year you're making a million dollars off of this then you probably were listening to your ego and not the gods <laughs> but what do you think of this if you have a pull towards something well i think one of the things that I really wanted to address with this book is people who are not drawn to the gods of their genetic ancestors and who may say, well, you know, I don't feel right about claiming a heritage that isn't mine, but at the same time, I'm just not drawn to it. I'm not hearing, 
you know, what is supposed to be my genetic ancestry. And so I wanted to say, here are seven goddesses who are already syncretic. These are goddesses who have worshipped, welcomed worshippers of all ethnicities for thousands of years. They are not exclusive. They are not the gods of a particular people. They are not... Um, they are open to any worshiper, and they have been for thousands of years. So if you're not drawn to the gods of your genetic heritage, but you're not, you don't feel right about exploring something that's very different from yours, here are some goddesses who want you. They have an invitation out. So come on over. <laughs> come on down. <laughs> yeah, come on down. Come, come on down and see if you connect. Exactly. And these goddesses can be worshipped by, by men, right? Oh, absolutely. And were. Uh, for ex And several of these stories are about male worshippers. Um, Taiki, the story of the, the, the goddess of fortune, um, is about a young gambler who makes good. Um, the Epona story, uh, Belly and the evil prince is about a warrior. Um, the Athena story, Companion of Heroes, is about a historical uh, admiral and political leader, Themistocles. So absolutely, these goddesses are the patrons of both men and women um, throughout history. So they're not, again, they're not exclusive by gender either. They worshipped God, they worshipped worship welcomed worshipers um all over they well, they were not expected. no yeah of course yeah athena she was the the patron deity of athens without uh -huh. her there was no athens it was she was she encompassed everybody so did a lot of these other uh female deities so it makes perfect sense and you talk about uh a god of the place versus a universal god could you explain that to the audience joe Sure. Um, many gods began as the deities of a particular place. Um, perhaps in prehistoric times, there was a freshwater spring in the middle of a rocky and barren landscape, or a sea cave that seemed particularly numinous, or a mount, holy mountain. Um, these places became sacred places, and uh, attracted uh, deities that were the gods of that particular place. And so that's one of the earliest kinds of gods. And they tended to be interested in the people who lived there. And if you were born by the sacred mountain of whatever, and as an adult, you moved a hundred miles away and did something else, the gods of that place were no longer interested in you. You <laughs> didn't live there anymore. And if somebody else moved in and began worshiping there, then they became the gods of that person because that person lived in their sacred place and tended their sacred landscape. Um, the other kind of major kind of god in the ancient world were the gods of people. And that's what we tend to be most familiar with. We tend to think of Sumerian gods or Assyrian gods or Egyptian gods who are the gods of an ethnic group and are very much smite the enemies of my people. 
my people are better than your people and my people are going to smite your people. And that tends to be a very old um, way of looking at it. But what happens in the Hellenistic world in, say, from 300 BCE on is that there is the rise of universal gods who are not limited either to a particular location or to a particular tribe and who say we are the gods of a much broader thing like um, Aphrodite as a sea goddess. She is the goddess of all sailors. She's not the goddess of sailors who are only Greek sailors who live on a certain island. She's the goddess of all <laughs> sailors, of anyone who sets sets off onto her seas. And so that the universal gods and goddesses um, are part of this expanding world in the Hellenistic world where peoples are mixing and peoples are uh, hybridizing and syncretizing and their gods do as well. Some people might be uh, blinking right now saying, wait a second, you said Aphrodite, goddess of the sea? What's going yeah. on? <laughs> well, we tend to think of Aphrodite as just the goddess of erotic love, but certainly in the past, she was worshipped in many, many guises. And one of the most powerful of those was Aphrodite Pelagia, Aphrodite, the queen of the seas. And there was an entire... Um, festival in the spring the euploia in which aphrodite's blessing was asked for the ships um and she you know we often see her in art rising from the sea the birth of aphrodite on a shell but she is the the old queen of the sea um and in that way very closely related to astarte and ashtara who are of course um other sea goddesses slash love goddesses so um yeah the version of aphrodite i talk about in this book is aphrodite pelagia and also aphrodite pandemos aphrodite of all people because all people can love and all people can be loved oh that's wonderful yeah and uh, even she was a very complex goddess. I know the Spartans, to 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 them, she was a goddess of war, too. She had a dual aspect, which is uh, not as rare in ancient times. Uh, all gods have a shadow or a shadow side, or they have a, a polarity in their roles. And do you think Aphrodite, is she older than the Greeks? Is she an imported goddess? What are your thoughts? It's interesting. Um, there is some indication that she was originally like Astarte or Ashtara or that Astarte and Ashtara and Aphrodite are all versions of a pre-Mediterranean dark-aged goddess which is what I think is most likely that there was a sea goddess um before the Mediterranean Dark Age, before, say, 1200 BC, the crash of the Minoan world, the uh, Dark Age that followed the era of the Trojan War, that there was a sea goddess who was known throughout the trading ports of the eastern Mediterranean. Uh, perhaps 
her name was something like Aphrodite or Astarte or Ashtara, but that in the Mediterranean Dark Age, her worship endured in various seaport cities along the islands and along the Mediterranean, but diverged some, her name diverged some in different languages, some details of her story and her worship diverged some over that few hundred years, but remained similar enough that when people got back in contact, they said, oh, that looks really familiar. Makes sense. And for the audience that might uh, need a little uh, uh, more to know, what is the Hellenistic period or culture, and uh, some might even say, why is it relevant to us in 2023? Uh, The Hellenistic world is this enormously vibrant meeting of cultures starting from the time of Alexander the Great and running into the Roman period about five or six hundred years. And The thing that is fascinating about it to me is that before this, you can study various ancient cultures more or less in isolation. You can read about Egypt or you could read about uh, Sumer or you can read about India or Greece and you can kind of look at these pieces one at a time and it's very hard to look at the world. but in the Hellenistic world, what happens is suddenly there is all of this trade and contact and movement of peoples, and you can talk about a coherent culture where people are aware of one another and are passing goods and services and books and stories and even people over an area from France and Spain all the way to India. And this this period is so vibrant that it gives birth to enormous technological progress, to amazing art, to amazing literature, and to this first partial, partial world culture. And that's why I think it's relevant today, because one of the challenges the Hellenistic world addresses is how do you deal with other peoples? Mm-hmm. Uh, not as a tribe that you're going to smite, but how do you deal with other peoples as neighbors? Yeah, what are you going to gain from them? Uh, what are you going to learn from them? What are you going to find out uh, how similar you are and so forth? Yeah, so basically, Alexander the Great was like the internet for us <laughs> or the chat GPT or whatever. The world got shrunk. A big portion yes. of the world got shrunk. Yes. And one of the things, and I do talk about this a little bit in the book, is one of the ways it shrunk was military families. Alexander the Great's army, uh, in its trek, its monster trek for epic journey from Greece all the way to India and then back, um, you know, when you have an army on the move for about 10, 11 years, they meet a lot of women in the places that they go. (laughs) And Alexander dowered 10,000 women to marry their lovers. That various of his soldiers had met women and the women were traveling, but they weren't married and they didn't have any money. And at various points, Alexander said, you know what, I'll help you regularize this thing. You want to get married? (laughs) I'll give her a dowry. 10,000 military wives, 10,000 couples 
Now, let's say that over the next 20 years after this, each couple had two kids. That's pretty reasonable. Two kids that survive. Yeah. 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 So that's 20,000 people who have a Greek father and a mother who is Egyptian, Nabataean, uh, from uh, Russian, from up almost in the Ukraine, Indian, Persian. All of them have mothers from all over the place, all of these military wives. And 20,000 kids, 30,000 kids. That's an awful lot of people. And what do these military wives do? They, They share stories. They share food. They share recipes. They take care of each other's kids. And they share gods. They share customs. Let's say you're one of these Greek guys and your wife is Persian. Well, her best, you've got a friend and his wife is Indian from the Sindh. Your wife, his wife hang out. They're trading recipes back and forth. Your kids are growing up together. And so what the kids, what these 20 or 30,000 or however many kids it is, get is this very syncretic culture that's very tolerant oh well we do that at my friend so-and-so's house but we don't do it at my other friend's house because (laughs) you know they take their shoes off oh they always eat rice with with mangoes but we don't eat rice with mangoes we eat rice with pistachios Mm -hmm. and so that is that is where we see this enormous um mixing so you know let's say you're this guy and you have two kids you have a boy and a girl your daughter grows up and she wants to marry the son of another veteran but this guy uh his father is from Caria in asia minor and his mother is from the ukraine wow there's another <laughs> whole set of culture yeah yeah and so i think one thing that is very relevant to a lot of Americans today is that many of us have that situation. You know, we're, we have one grandparent who's Italian and one Mm -hmm. grandparent who's Polish and we're a mix. And so in the Hellenistic world, this is the first time that you have this kind of consensual mixing, because if your son wants to marry that girl who's half Carrion and half Ukrainian, Nobody is making him. This is a girl he's grown up with, a girl he knows. He goes to school with her brother. This is syncretism. This is consensual mixing and joining. Makes perfect sense. So, yeah, these military wives were the social media of the time, while Alexander the Great was the Internet. So Yes. And, of course, yeah, education centers that were spread out and so forth. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, made for very interesting times. and. Uh, as uh, Joe was talking to you, uh, audience members listening in, each of the seven goddesses that she describes has a story, and they're great stories as well. And then there's uh, the ritual, the symbolism, everything about the goddess, so you just don't get the history of the goddess. And you said uh, one of these, yeah, the stories of uh, Themistocles and Salamis, I knew that was historical. Are the other ones historical too, or...? Some of them are. Um, the 
one for Epona, Belly and the Wicked Prince, is historical. That one is about um, Belly Mar, who was a Celtic war leader, and his war against Ptolemy the Thunderbolt, who's one of the sons of Ptolemy Soter, and who was pretty much by everybody's definition a real bad guy. <laughs> so he's the Wicked Prince of the story. Uh, and that one is definitely also a historical one. No, it makes sense. Well, they're wonderful stories. Before we get into them, uh, Vance, while we're having a conversation, do you have a question for Joe on what we've been talking about or anything else before we break down some of these cool goddesses? Yeah, I do. Um, one thing I always wondered about is, uh, like, uh, like, for example, Zeus is known to impregnate human females, but are there any stories of goddesses who allowed themselves to be impregnated with mortal men? Oh, I'm glad you asked that, because that is indeed one of the stories. Um, the Atargata story is about a goddess uh, who was the mermaid queen of the Euphrates River and who had a child by a fisherman who grew up to be a great warrior queen. And we have a lot of stories about the sons of gods who grew up to be mighty heroes. But this is the story of a, the daughter of a goddess who grows up to be a great queen. So, yeah, we I have one of those stories. Interesting. <laughs> uh, I was also wondering, uh, do you think of the far future, people will look back on our modern era and uh, um, either take some of our movie stars as goddesses and gods or or maybe superimpose the ancient gods on our culture and say well the reason they were doing this is because really zeus was in back of these things or hermes was was active and they didn't know it now what do you think about that the people in the future looking back on our times i think they will probably have different names and different faces for the gods um that suit their own needs and that's really an interesting question because i also have a fiction space opera series going and one of the things that it's talking about is about the gods of space this is far future this is our descendants and how they have visualized the gods in a starfaring culture so yeah it's a fascinating question yeah, it makes me think of Philip K. Dick and uh, the, <laughs> the kind of the kind of characters he wrote about. Yeah, and it's interesting too. Uh, I wanted to talk about Tyche, the goddess of fortune, and what uh, jumped out at me, Joe, was uh, you talk about uh, what it is to have fortune, and you give the story of Argonthos and his gambling and all that, and then you put this really funny story where. There's a man and he's always praying for a lottery ticket and he spends decades go by and he's praying for to win the lottery to be rich and he's getting desperate towards the end of his life and then suddenly God opens the clouds and says, well, why don't you buy a ticket first? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in other words, a great lesson. We have to, you, to, uh, to have good fortune, you've got to take risks, right? You got to do yeah. the work. Yeah. <laughs> And so I sort of draw, each story has a a moral to it, I suppose. Um, <laughs> one of the morals of 
Dikey story is you got to take a chance. You're, you're, you're never going to win if you don't throw the dice. You know, if you don't apply for that job, you're certainly not going to get it. <laughs> if you don't apply to that university, you're never going to get in. Now, you know, applying doesn't mean you're going to get the job. No. But you can be 100% sure you're not going to get the job if you don't apply. You, you've got to, if you want to be lucky, you've got to get out there and take the chances. Exactly. And she was the goddess, basically, of fortune. I know in ancient times, like the Neoplatonists, they would put, yeah, they would put fate and Taiki side by side, right? One was mm -hmm. what's happening and the other one's what you're going to do with it. And she's one of the ones that's most pervasive today. You know, she's how often have you ever heard someone say, lady luck, be mine. <laughs> you know, it's, it's the crapshoot, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Lady luck, be with me. That's hasn't changed a bit in 2000 years. Yeah. Luck be a lady tonight. And I'll saying too. Exactly. And, uh, for, uh, the other goddess too, I wanted to talk a little bit about Athena you mentioned that she is the goddess of democracy again as we were saying uh she is the patron of athens but one question that you do address and you could maybe share with the audience is people will be asking well what is wisdom people talk about wisdom but very few people can describe it well i think there are three parts to athena's take on wisdom um, and I talk about them briefly. The first is to let go of your presuppositions that often we have an idea of how something will go and we're stuck on that. Well, no one could ever do whatever it is. Right. That could never happen. So, and we're stuck because once we've decided that something is impossible, we can't possibly come to terms with the idea that it might actually happen. Um, and that's that's something I, that I think we see a lot to these days in current affairs. Mm -hmm. You know, if you had said in 2019 that on January 6, 2021, a uh, a mob of insurrectionists would storm the U.S. Capitol, <laughs> people would have said, you're crazy. That's science fiction. That's some kind of bad movie. That could never happen. It couldn't really happen. But it could really happen, and it did really happen. And so we have to let go of our presuppositions so that we can make good, good decisions based on what actually is not what we think things ought to be. So that's one of Athena's pieces of wisdom. And another piece is to think things through. Um, you know, if you've ever tried to buy a used car, <laughs> as I have, mm -hmm. you get the, oh, it's a special deal. One day only, little lady, I'm just a special <laughs> deal for you. You know, I've got another buyer who's very interested. He's coming by this afternoon. So, you know, if you want this one, you better, right? to stampede you, to stop you from thinking things through. Oh, no, you don't need to have your mechanic <laughs> take a look at it. It's certified. 
Oh, no need to look under the hood. It's all okay. (laughs) (laughs) Right. When you hear that, you know that someone is trying to sell you something that's not right because they're trying to stop you from thinking too hard about it, from really thinking it through. And so, you know, to be wise, to make a wise decision, you need to let go of your presuppositions and think it through. And then The last thing is to follow your insight. You know, sometimes we have an idea and we say, you know, that's too out there. That's too, you know, it probably isn't that that's not going to work. I I can't. But your insight is telling you Athena's hand on your shoulder is telling you that you really can or that it really is or that you have an insight that that really does bear on the situation if you just listen listen so i think those are the three um lessons of athena's wisdom that i talk about in the book no those are wise words that's for sure and uh yeah i, I don't have after 2016 I, I no longer have any presuppositions i think that's a mark of a wise person you just expect whatever happens don't be surprised um uh, but uh, at the same time, Joe, you talk about, and I'm repeating the uh, the story of Themistocles and Salamis, and most people might not know that the Battle of Salamis, this ocean battle or the sea battle, is considered one of the greatest military feats of all time, where uh, where the Greeks were able to defeat the vastly superior Persian uh, navy. And, uh, of course, uh, Xerxes was completely humiliated and so forth. But it was a real turning point in history because the the Hellenistic uh, world was able to keep its independence from the empire of Persia. But as you say, there was a lot of trickery in there. And uh, Themistocles was helped by Athena. And that therefore, wisdom is, as people might not accept, wisdom is being having some trickery, right? Some cunning. Absolutely. Athena loves a trickster. She <laughs> loves, she, Athena, one of the interesting things, uh, oh, sometimes people say, well, you know, Athena and Ares, they're both gods of war, but different mm-hmm. kinds of things. Um, Ares tends to be the god of like physical prowess and you know one-on-one combat uh, the god of combat he's John and, Wick of the gods right <laughs> yeah I mean he, he you know he, he's the the big strong hero and Athena loves the strategist and in the Odyssey and the Iliad she loves Wily Odysseus she loves the clever guy the guy who's got the plan um, and so that's what happened at Salamis. Uh, you know, her admiral had the plan uh, that would defeat the Persians, not by being overwhelmingly mighty, but by being much smarter than they were. <laughs> An amazing feat. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, and it makes sense. I mean, uh, we also have to remember Athena helped Prometheus steal fire from the gods. Uh, mm-hmm. She was always on the side of the trickster. And uh, I've done articles and showed these articles to scholars. And when you break down the the classic trickster god with the Gnostic Sophia, it's they are completely parallel. She falls under that trickster archetype. So 
it's uh, certainly food for thought about the wisdom and trickery. So uh, mm-hmm. it, it expands the mind. And you were talk- Vance asked that question about goddesses uh, mating with mortal men. And I was, I forgot, but you can put a knot there, except a knot, it was complete casual sex. And she often killed the men or the animals she had sex with. She was a, she was out of control. I think there are these sort of like destructive sexual goddesses that just wipe out anything in front of them <laughs> well otter goddess uh is is not like that she uh presumably foresaw that babylon would be threatened by its enemies and so she chose a clever and kind young man hadad the fisherman to be the father of her daughter who would preserve her city and so that's her story is she bore him Samuramat, who became through a long series of events the queen of babylon and the great assyrian warrior queen who preserved her kingdom so um yeah and she was very- later worshipped by the seleucid empire right so yes the yes. greeks liked her too <laughs> absolutely Absolutely. And, you know, when the Seleucids moved into Babylon, they uh, adopted her uh, as the goddess of Babylon, the uh, goddess, the goddess of the Euphrates. And she became known throughout the Roman world as Deasura, which is the Syrian goddess. Um, And her worship was even more widely spread under that name. Atar Goddess is her sort of Greek name, but Deasura is probably better known in the Roman world. And uh, another goddess, they're all fascinating, but this one is one that many might know, not know, or at least she is not from the uh, Greco-Roman or the Greco-Egyptian matrix, and that is Epona, am I saying that right? The Lady yes. of the Horses. Could you share about her? Because she was very popular. Like I said, she had shrine. Eventually, she had shrines in Alexandria, even though she was Celtic. Yeah, we tend to think of her as a Celtic goddess, but in the Hellenistic period, uh, the Celts lived not just places that we think of as Celtic today, like Ireland and Brittany and Scotland and France, but all the way across a broad swath of Europe into what's now Romania, Moldova, and into northern Turkey, uh, where there was a kingdom called Galatia. And the kingdom that I talk about in this, Belly's kingdom, uh, is in what's now Romania near the port of Istria on the Black Sea. Uh, So Romania, Moldova, and into Ukraine um, were part of this Celtic world that was closely tied to the Hellenistic world. So... um, yeah, Epona's worship as a Celtic goddess went with people uh, throughout the Hellenistic world, and that's how you wind up with a shrine to her in Alexandria. Yeah, very cool goddess. Vance, do you have a question? Yeah, um, you know, throughout the ages and all the different cultures and so forth, uh, people who worship the gods and goddesses uh, must have communicated with them in one way or another. So I was wondering if you had any insights as to 
how the different cultures handle that. I mean, we had priests and priestesses, right? The go-betweens or oracles. And then uh, people also uh, have the potential of saying that they personally communicated with them. What do you think about that uh, particular subject? It's really interesting. One of the ways that people communicated commonly, and I'm not talking about great rulers, and I'm not talking about um, priests, is to write a letter or to write a request. And so one of the ways that we know about uh, some of who the worshipers were is that some of these requests have survived, that um, people would in Egypt, for example, write a letter to a god or a goddess and say, Dear Isis, I want to talk to you about my son-in-law because he drinks too much, and when he does, it really upsets my daughter, and I feel like he's not being a good father to my grandchildren, and I really would like you to work on my son-in-law, Isis, because he is a problem, and he has a drinking problem. And we can find these letters. Wow. Um, you know, of ordinary people. And I, one of the ones I quote in the book is that there's a letter from a couple um, to at our goddess who say you know this is from uh this is from this man and wife and on behalf of their children and they really would like to thank at our goddess for uh her great gifts that she's given their family and so it's a thank you letter and that survives to to us so I, one of the reasons why I, uh, in this adapting ancient worship for modern times, that I did have a number of things where it involved writing a letter is because that's very, that's, that's a very old way of communicating with a God. You know, like a written prayer. Yeah. yeah. And so their answer would come in, in the uh, change in the situation. In, in the case. change in the situation. And Sometimes um, the votives were, the letters were just left. Sometimes uh, in different places they were burned. Obviously the ones that we have are the ones that were, you know, put away for the God, not burned. And sometimes they were inscribed on something else, inscribed on a piece of pottery. Um, the expensive way to do it is to put your thank you on the bottom of a piece of art or some other permanent offering that could stay in the temple, but that's expensive. And I think the letters give us a better look at, you know, what ordinary people would do. Right. How about the animated statues that the Greeks used to uh, deal with? Oh, that's amazing. Um, there is a wonderful book called Alexandria, Birthplace of the Modern Mind, that talks about the amazing statues in the Serapium and the Iceum that um, moved through engineering principles that are just fantastic. They're, they're wonderful. Yeah, and of course, Serapis, as you write, uh, speaking of uh, syncretic, uh, he's the god that represented because he's such a mixture. He's like telling people, this is the new type of God where we all just mix it all up. And speaking of two, Joe, when it comes to your book deals with Isis, uh, of course, still a very, very popular goddess today in the neo-pagan community. She started out more or less as a goddess of fertility, and then she became sort of uh, the uh, supreme salvific 
uh, universal goddess of the Greco-Roman world. I mean, even they say at the time when Christianity was starting to be adopted by the Roman Empire, a quarter of the Roman Empire was devoted to Isis. How do you think she got so popular or her evolution from, you know, kind of a minor goddess to an all-encompassing supreme deity? I think the answer is in her identity as mother of the world. Mm. Because, you know, even if we were unfortunate enough to lose our mother when we were very young, everyone has a mother. Everyone who has ever existed had a mother and we can everyone can identify with what it would feel like to be taken care of by their mother even if they don't quite remember it even if it was when you were very small i bet when you were very very small your mother told you that you were so beautiful and kissed your nose (laughs) yeah and you may not remember it but it's there in the back of your mind and that that encompassing safety and loving care of being safe in your mom's arms, of waking up in the middle of the night because you have a tummy ache, and she picks you up and she says, oh, no, no, there, 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 there. And she burps you and rocks you, and you go back to sleep cuddled up. It's there in the back of your mind that that's what love feels like. Does that make sense? No, that makes sense. I think, again, even Athens needed a mother, and that was kind of Athena. You need that, uh, yeah, you need that type of energy to make you feel safe and understood, and somebody's there for you. And, of course, the womb of creation is a mm-hmm. very powerful motif, portal, whatever you can. We can't deny it. And we re- we come from that womb, and we will return to that underworld in a way, right? Yeah. <laughs> Which brings me back to the next goddess, which was probably as popular as Isis and probably much more enigmatic, perhaps complex. And that is the great mother herself, Cybele. Could you say what is, well, Cybele is very, was a very controversial. Do you think she was different than Isis? Uh, tell us your views on this uh, amazing. Cybele is very. Um... She is a goddess of the wild, of wild places. She is not a tame or urban goddess. Um, Isis is very orderly. Mm -hmm. Isis likes, you know, beautiful fields full of crops that are growing and markets that are brimming with good food for people to eat and abundant grain harvests and people making bread and fishing boats coming back laden and the world moving according to Mott, according to the to justice and the order of the world. And Kaibale is wild. She is the goddess of wilderness and hidden things and those deep places inside you that say, maybe I don't want to be orderly. <laughs> maybe, maybe instead of having a nice Saturday in which I mow my yard so that it looks neat and tidy and take out the trash. Maybe what I want to do is put on a leather jacket, get on a motorcycle, <laughs> and go somewhere and not tell anyone where I'm going. 
Born to be <laughs> and, wild. <laughs> yeah, born to be wild because we've all got that trans that somewhere in us too, we all have the desire to transform, to change, to step outside the boundaries of our life, to say, what if I didn't mow my lawn? (laughs) (laughs) I'm not shaving my legs this spring, damn it. (laughs) Exactly. What if instead of getting up and shaving and mowing the lawn (laughs) and doing all of the things on my honeydew list, what if I didn't do them? What if I just got in the car and showed up next Tuesday? (laughs) Well, most of us probably wouldn't actually do it, but sometimes we need to change our lives. Sometimes we need to walk on the wild side, whether it's for a day or whether it's to permanently change our lives. But at the same time, Joe, she still has that mother vibe to her because, for example, She's not like Sekhmet or Anath or Kali who are just destructive and wild. She no, still has no, that. She's not destructive. She, she, yeah, there's a nurturing part that made her very popular yeah, in the entire absolutely. world. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But it's nurturing like the lioness is nurturing. Right, exactly. You know, the, the lioness will nurture her cubs very, very carefully. But if you're out hunting on the mountain and you see her and her cubs, you better go the other direction. (laughs) Or a mama bear. Yeah, exactly. Or a mama bear. You know, a mama bear is extremely nurturing, but she is also extremely dangerous. Don't come near her cubs. (laughs) Didn't the Catholic Church um, eventually absorb her? I'm sorry, what? I think it was ISIS. No, the Catholic Church. uh, Cybele. absorbed her as saint mary of the mountains yeah oh wow but um isis also many of the um statues of isis were repurposed when i was in rome in september this last year there is a, a beautiful statue of isis and horus in the vatican museum which was taken for a a Mary and Jesus. And it is, in fact, a beautiful Hellenistic statue of Isis and Horus. And it's the Madonna and Child. And it's both, of course, isn't it? Exactly. It's the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. The triad of the mother, father, and the child. Yeah. I know uh, there are some legends where obviously there's a legend that Cybele was worshipped as a black a meteorite that fell, and everybody was like, "Whoa, color out of space," kind of thing. But uh, she was also there's also the myth that she was like Sophia. She rebelled against the heavenly order, except Sophia decided to get impregnate herself with her own uh, pride. But Cybele literally was a god, and she. He castrates himself and becomes a woman, falls into earth. So with Cybele, there's this, again, this challenging of all rules and identities. And even her priests, the Gali, were very controversial, right? Even though well, she's at so one popular. point, Rome passed laws that the Gali had to stay in the temple precincts and were only allowed out two days a year because they thought that it was so... Um, dangerous to roman virtue to even you know see the galley grocery shopping that they Mm. weren't allowed to leave the temple precincts but certain days so yeah in in rome they found this very frightening um 
not so much in the Hellenistic East, where people tended to have sort of a broader cultural perspective. But the further west you got, um, yeah, there was a lot more discomfort with a, a number of these goddesses, although certainly um, many of them were very popular throughout the Roman period and throughout the Roman world. There are temples of Isis as far north as Scotland. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, you know, they continued to spread. And uh, interesting, too, because... Uh, and I just love talking about Cybele. I hope I'm not butchering the name of who's called her Cybele. Uh, but uh, I love, uh, I, she, I always find her fascinating. But you say she's a goddess of transitions. I always thought it, that would be more of the trickster god like Hecate or Hermes, those gods that can make you travel into an altered state of mind or the underworld and all that. Well, I think one difference if i were if someone were asking me you know what should i when should i look at kybele and when should i look at one of these others i think the question is is this an ecstatic journey in which you are going and returning because you want to learn something because you want to grow um that you're going to go into this altered state and then you're going to come back or is this something that you intend to be a permanent change if for example you said you know i've decided that i i'm i live in texas and i work in tech and i've decided that i'm going to change my life and i'm going to move to vermont and i'm going to be a maple farmer and make maple syrup mm -hmm. and i'm going to completely leave everything that i have known in my life well it's a huge huge transition oh yeah and it's intended to be permanent it's not an ecstatic i'm going to go to a festival <laughs> and i'm going to have this amazing experience that much of which is internal and changes how i feel but then at the end of the festival i'm going to go home and I'm not planning to quit my job. I'm not planning to get a divorce. I'm going to go home at the end of this. That that's that's different. That's that's um, that's an ecstatic journey. That's right. that's that's not Kybele. Kybele is the permanent change, the irreversible, um, you know, thing that cannot be undone. There's a big difference between going away for the weekend and having an amazing experience, even if you find that personally transforming, and saying, honey, I want a divorce. Because even because you can't take that back very easily. No. <laughs> no. And once you've said it, even if you say, no, wait, I don't that was really wrong. mean it. <laughs> <laughs> let's work it out <laughs> yeah you've you've made a major change you've 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 kicked over that apple cart and the apples are all over the floor and um you know the apples just are rolling and who knows what will wind up happening so you know i i think the the transformation part is about a permanent change uh something that isn't going to be um internal it's something that's going to be external and it's going to stay with you no that makes perfect sense uh yeah 
the point of no return, which is uh, sometimes that's what we need. And as we get towards the end of the interview, Joe, maybe you can tell the audience a little bit about uh, the programs and the rituals. What can they expect when they read your book? And what do you expect people to get out of your book? Well, each um, each chapter starts the same way. It starts with a story and then some questions to think about about the story. And then talks a little bit about the ancient worship of the goddess. And then there is a meditation um, to meet the goddess. And I recommend that you either have someone read it aloud to you or more likely, uh, if you're by yourself, that you record it for yourself and play it to yourself in a quiet place. Um, these meditations are short. These are, you know, three, four minutes. They're not lengthy and are just designed to give you a taste of the goddess. And then each chapter concludes with a ritual, a rite to ask for the goddess's help or honor her and usually it's asking for something um, appropriate to her for example um, the right to honor isis is to bring love into your life and not just romantic love not just erotic love but love of whatever kind it is that you are hoping for friendship parental love um, whatever it is that you're looking for taiki it's to bring good fortune um, at our goddess, it's to help you with something that you're working on. Um, very often we tend to downplay the role of hard work. And so someone right. to help us stay working and keep our focus on something. So each, uh, each chapter is structured to end with a ritual to talk a little bit about you know, making a request the same way that you might have in the ancient world. And in some cases, one of the things I'm using is the letters to write a letter. Yeah, for the audience, uh, the book is very helpful and it's useful. And uh, yeah, it can take you places. And I don't want to risk uh, pissing off or having seven goddesses angry at you, Joe. But uh, do you have a favorite goddess of these seven? Oh, you know... It's very hard to say. Um, I suppose that Isis is the one that I consider my own personal patron. Um, so I, I favorite, I suppose, in that sense. Um, I also love Aphrodite a great deal. Um, I, I, I feel some connection to all of them. Some of them I am less connected to, and I think that's true of everyone, that everyone is going to have some that they feel more connection to and some that they find just kind of don't really seem to have anything to do with them. Um, you know, I had a friend who looked at this and she said, well, I just don't understand why Epona's in here. I just don't, I don't <laughs> connect with her at all. And I thought about it and, you know, knowing her, that that makes a lot of sense. That's just, it's just, uh, it's not her, you know? So I think um, my hope is that everyone will find a goddess or two or three that they do feel some connection with and nobody's going to feel connected to all seven. That's just, no. if I've got a wide enough range, they won't. 
No, they're so they're so varied. Yeah, and to each his own. And again, what calls your soul? What uh, you know? Sometimes books choose you. Gods choose you. So mm-hmm. let him let and them come into your it life. Depends on where you are in your life, of right? Course. Then, um, you know, if for example. Uh, we're talking about Kaibale and transition. Let's say that this book comes into your life at a point where you are on the cusp of a major transition. You're ending a relationship. You're moving across the country. You're starting a new job in an area that's way outside your comfort zone. Um, you know, that transition you may be at the exact point in your life where this speaks to you. And if you'd found this book, 10 years from now, uh, maybe you would be at a different place. Exactly. Well, as we're at the end, Vance, any last uh, comment or question? Yeah, uh, Joe, I was wondering if you'd run across any information about the goddess Alethea. Uh, No, I have not. Okay. That's my favorite goddess. Oh, okay. All right. The truth. The truth. Alethea shall set you free. So, awesome. Well, Vance, uh, thanks for uh, keeping us company. Oh, it's very very educational and interesting. Yeah, highly recommend this book. And, Joe, uh, I will have this on the show notes, but for audio, where can people find out about you and to purchase your works? Um, My books are available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, uh, all of the major uh, outlets. they are available directly from the publisher at Llewellyn. If you'd like to find out about me and my books, I'm on Goodreads, Joe Graham. Uh, I have three books on spirituality with Llewellyn, but I have a total of 27 books. The other 24 books are fiction books, and I would love to have you come check them out as well. Awesome. We'll check it out and definitely check out Seven Goddesses of the Hellenistic World. I enjoy the book and I found it useful. So, but we are at the end of this uh, odyssey. Joe, thank you very much for coming on Aeon Bide, giving us your time and your Athena wisdom. Well, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it so much. Pleasure all ours. And there you have it, you shining crazy diamonds. Joe doing justice to the goddess archetype in all her kick-ass manifestations. As mentioned in the intro, we could only do a bit over an hour. Beyond scheduling Archons, Joe was on the tail end of the Rona, and I had a coal where I could barely breathe. So as a bonus for all subs, I'll include a past interview with Kelly Hunter, author of Living Lilith, Four Dimensions of the Cosmic Feminine a whole lot of Lilith and other spicy goddesses. Don't miss it. So please support this Red Pill Cafeteria if you find any value in this content or to help grow the Gnostic movement. Many ways to support and sub. AB Prime, Patreon, Red Circle, and many tiers to accommodate your budget. If you're already a sub, You can always upgrade to the Finding Hermes program where we have exclusive meetings and presentations every month. Or you can help with my Amazon wishlist, merch store, or just throw a tip here and there on Stripe or YouTube. 
And don't forget the Virtual Alexandria Academy, which has a ton of content on the goddess and Gnostic research you won't find anywhere on the internets. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self, here in the desert of the real. Hello and goodbye, as always. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.